Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. A word about our sponsor. Nothing compares to finding the strength of your own authentic voice. That's why Green Bucket Press developed the voice book line of blank journals, ideal for notes, ideas, plans, poems, drawings, stories, and more. Check out the voice book and our other innovative products at greenbucketpress.com. You can purchase them online. In episode three of the Present Tense podcast, we offer part two of the story of J. Everett Batterbury, an old man who came into my life when I lived with my young son, Edward, on 12th Street South in Birmingham, Southside. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest that you start at the beginning of the story in episode two. One night, Everett came over for spaghetti supper. When I invited him to supper, I always told him the menu. Sometimes he didn't like what I was fixing, and he wouldn't come, preferring his canned stew and honey buns to my curried lentils and rice. He was finicky that way. When I told him spaghetti, he accepted. I sent Edward over to get him, and they returned, watching part of a TV show until the food was ready. Everett sat in the sturdy chair with arms that he used to lower and raise himself. I served. We said prayers. We started to eat. Everett took a mouthful. Next thing I knew, Everett was choking on spaghetti noodles, which were halfway down his throat and halfway hanging out of his mouth. His eyes looked at me appealingly. I got out of my chair and went over to him. I grasped the noodles hanging out of his mouth and pulled. They slid back out of his throat without resistance. Edward looked on with his mouth open. I cut the noodles on Everett's plate into small pieces. I gave him a spoon. We continued our dinner and had ice cream for dessert. Everett accepted my presence, but I was second fiddle to Jesse. When he came over or when I went over to his place, he always asked about Jesse right off. Uh, where's, uh, what's his name? He asked. Jesse? I offered. Yeah, that's it. Jesse, he replied. No matter how much time he spent with Jesse, he called him what's his name. First he said this to me, and then he said it to Jesse himself. I started to call Jesse what's his name. Jesse laughed a deep, open-mouthed laugh. Lots of times we shared the silence while I worked. One night, I was in the middle of a sewing project. Everett sat in the living room chair, watching me measure and cut the cloth. Each of us comfortable without speaking. He accepted the new undershirts and socks I pressed upon him. He accepted my gathering his laundry to wash. 
He accepted my clucking and tending. He asked for nothing except Jesse and Edward. Where's the boy? He asked. He's with his grandma and grandpa. Where's what's his name? He's out at the farm. So we'd continue being together. After some months, Everett's head wound still wasn't healed. It was a permanent black scab. His strength was ebbing. I was expecting to find him dead any time. One day I came home and had a message on my phone machine that he'd fallen and was at the hospital. I did not think that he would come back home. It was just after New Year's. I went to the hospital to see Everett. How you doing, old man? I asked. Everett looked at me as if I was another nurse entering the room cheerfully. When he saw it was me, he smiled weakly. Not too bad, he said. His eyes lit up as he saw Edward, who trailed behind with his book. Hello there, young fella, he said brightly. Now that's a smart boy, always reading them books. Hi, said Edward finding a chair in which he nestled, opening his book. Everett, if I told you once, no good would come from you going out and partying with those girls. But did you listen to me? No, sir. Now look at you, I teased. Everett grinned happily, his chin disappearing. A gauze bandage covered the spot where his wound had been. He motioned to his head. They cut it out, said it was cancer he whispered. The doctor said he did a skin graft. He said the words precisely. I fell, he added. Couldn't get up? Good thing the old lady's daughter came by. He looked pale and thin in the bed. I sat beside him. We were silent. I reached for his hand and held it, rubbing gently. How's, what's his name? asked Everett. Oh, he's about crazy like always. He's a good man. Yes, he is a real good man. Jesse and Everett were a lot alike, both taking the world as it came, asking for nothing but their freedom to be. Both lived alone, comfortable with silence. The next day I went to the hospital again. The bandage was gone, and I saw the round patch of skin sewed over the hole from which a plug of flesh had been removed. It looked like a king-sized mark of the Brahmin. It was shiny with salve. A doctor came in and gave me the report without asking my connection to Everett. Having trouble walking, cannot find any problems in the feet. I'll tell you the problem in his feet, I said to the doctor. Look at those toenails. I pulled back the covers. Atop Everett's long, thin toes were toenails as thick as horns. The nails were long and gnarly. Don't tell me those nails don't make it hard to walk, I said. The doctor eyed me as if I were a creature, a slug, perhaps. He shifted slightly in an exquisitely tailored, dark blue, herringbone wool suit. Nice suit, I added. 
but you need to tend those feet. Well, that's not the sort of work that I do. We'll have to call in the gobbledygook, medicalese for the person who tends feet. He sniffed. Well, whatever it takes, but somebody needs to tend to those feet. I leaned closer to him. Those aren't toenails, they're horns. No wonder the poor man can't walk. Everett smiled from his bed. The doctor checked his skin graft with well-manicured hands. He left the room. I sat down on the bed by Everett. That's a very handsome suit you're wearing, Mr. Batterbury. Nothing but the finest for you. Everett grinned broadly. His hospital gown drooped shapelessly from his bony shoulders. Now, Everett, no party girls while I'm gone. You need anything? You doing all right? Are the nurses being sweet? I leaned close to him. Not too bad, Anne. Not too bad. stronger what with regular meals and physical therapy. He was using a walker. The landlady chose a small apartment in a small retirement complex for him where he'd have help and support but could maintain his independence. We moved his things over. Then his condition worsened. It was decided that he could not live on his own. The idea of a nursing home was hard for me to swallow. I wanted this man to have a decent life. He deserved it. He lived his life with dignity, although he owned nothing but some clothes. For me, he was a grandfather I'd never had. My relationship with Everett was my only experience with complete, unconditional love. He was glad when I was there, but not eager for me to stay. He never asked when I was coming back. He accepted what came. Few achieve that in this world. The hospital social worker told me that it would be extremely difficult to find a bed for him on such short notice. I went by her office and talked to her about Everett. I told her about his life, about his character, of how I had come to love him. It's got to be a good place, I said. She assured me that she'd do what she could. The next day she called to say that by some great miracle there was a space at a nursing home about twenty minutes away. It's a nice place, she said. At this point I was told that he needed someone with power of attorney 
who would act as his sponsor, which meant, in a nutshell, being responsible for the financial aspects of his contract with the nursing home. Although his Medicare would pay for the expenses, someone had to be there as a backup, or it would be left to the state. I thought about it. This could be me someday, I thought. This is Everett now. I talked with my father. How can I walk away from doing the right thing, I asked him. He gave me his support. That afternoon, in my father's cramped office, love shined between us. Love was present in the form of Everett. I called my college sister, an attorney, and explained the situation. She offered her services free. I toured the nursing home. It was full of smells, none of them pleasant, all on top of one another. At the front doors was a large molded planter filled with sand. Cigarette butts stuck out of the sand like grave markers in a military cemetery. There were some flowers planted out front. Inside the front door was a large living area with a great big TV set and clusters of chairs and couches arranged for groups of about four to eight people. Artificial flower stems jutted from blocks of foam hidden under sphagnum moss in little baskets. These careful arrangements were set here and there in the room, creating a lift upwards. The centerpiece of the room was an upright piano, It sat silent and shiny as a promise of good times to come. It wasn't too bad. It was awful. A man with no legs often sat in his wheelchair by the first floor desk, just by the elevator I took to the second floor. As I passed, saying hello, he leaned a little bit forward from his seat, holding the chair arms. He looked right into my eyes like he was looking for something specific. What it was, or whether he found it, he didn't say. I visited the activities room on the second floor. The room held a coffee pot, magazines, and a large hand-painted jar filled with candy. I walked the hall, heading for the room that Everett would fill. I passed many rooms with beds. Bodies were in most of the beds. Many pairs of eyes stared from the bodies in the beds. They stared up, or out, or down. Some looked at me as I passed. The smells were a mix of institutional food, cleanser, urine, and fecal matter, and death. The smell announced the resident's condition as I approached. The stronger the smell, the worse the condition. I played the Alabama polite game with several old ladies, black and white. It goes like this. I'm walking down the hall. A woman in a wheelchair sits in the hall before me. I slow down. And how are you this very fine afternoon? I ask, tipping my head and smiling. Hello there, hun. Oh, isn't it lovely out? I was looking out the window just a little while ago. And I was thinking that very thing. I was thinking, what a fine afternoon. Oh my, she says. 
then I trust that you will be enjoying the rest of a fine afternoon. Nice to see you. I continue on in my tour. I went to the director's office and filled out the forms. I talked with the director. I left. Everett was transported in an ambulance from the hospital to the nursing home the next day. I came to see him that evening with Jesse and Edward. Everett's eyes twinkled happily when he saw What's-His-Name and the boy come in the door with me. They visited while I went to talk to the nurses about their new and precious charge. They listened while I told his story. I came back the next day to talk to the floor nurse. I told his story once again. I talked to the physical therapist and the special services therapist. I wanted them to know that this man was special. This man deserved everything they could offer. Everett's room was spare. It contained two beds, two bedside tables, a curtain between, two cupboards on the wall, a small desk between the cupboards, and a bathroom. The walls were white. The floors were white and shining with wax. A fluorescent light was mounted on the wall beside each bed. The room was light. A large window spanned the upper half of the northern wall, fitted with blinds. Looking from the window, I saw cars passing on the road. Across the road was a small building surrounded by a large gravel yard. In the window of the building were carved stone figures. Slabs of stone filled the yard. Many of the slabs were unfinished. An inset rectangle that would be carved with the name of the deceased was blank. I laughed and shuddered. The lights of a nearby factory shined softly in the distance. The drugstore on the corner announced its presence with a sign baldly bright. The hamburger chain filed a line of cars past the drive through window. To the east, the sky was dark. Light clouds raced across the darkness. I crossed to Everett's bed and sat down. From his position in the bed, he saw only the clouded sky. Everett shared the room with a man named Walter, whose fancy bed whirled and jiggled. Walter had thick white hair. His skin was tight and thin, with red splotches. The whirring, jiggling bed made Walter jiggle, and the result was one of constant motion. Walter was never still. The first time we were there, Walter cried, Could someone please get me some water? He addressed the room, not us in particular. The nurses ignored his crying. He called, Could somebody please get me some water? Everett said he needed to go to the bathroom. We helped him up and out of bed. Jesse supported his trip to the bathroom. Meanwhile, an attendant entered the room. Where's, uh... Her eyes checked the nameplate by the door. Mr. Batterberry, she said. He's in the bathroom. In the bathroom? He can't go to the bathroom by himself. What's he doing in there? She demanded. Going to the bathroom, I offered. Going to the bathroom, 
she eyed me reproachfully. He's supposed to use a bedpan. He can't go to the bathroom by himself. She marched into the bathroom without knocking, as a mother does with a toddler. She was a great gust of energy. She came out and went to the door, calling for another attendant in a big voice. I sat on the bed. The quiet was gone from the room. The second attendant entered the bathroom with her. What you doing in here, sweetie? Honey, do you need to have a BM? Came the big voices in a high pitch. I doubted Everett's current desire or ability. My own rectum was tight. They emerged from the bathroom with Everett between them. They put him on the bed. He looked as if he'd received a stunning blow. Once satisfied that Everett was in place, they turned to us. Now y'all can't take him to the bathroom. He's got to have an attendant to do that. Y'all taking him is against the rules. One of them procured a bedpan. She said she'd help Everett with it once we left. And all the while, Walter called plaintively, insistently. Could somebody please get me some water? In the following days, I brought the black and white television to the room. I brought a small radio with headphones that he never used. The landlady brought him a sweatsuit. Everett lost what strength he had. After a few weeks, he stayed in the bed all the time. He wore the sweatsuit a lot. He would switch to adult diapers. The schedule of activities that I taped to the wall announced the daily prayer groups and the menu. Everett's speech deteriorated. It was difficult to understand him. Meanwhile, Walter blossomed. I gave him water. I put lotion on his dry skin. I brought lip balm and used it to heal his peeling lips. He was a retired engineer. He was divorced and had two children. Both of them lived in Birmingham, 15 minutes from the nursing home. They did not visit. They did not ever visit. I asked him if he had been a good father to them. He did not answer my question. He liked Edward and taught him a song. I woke up in the morning and there upon the wall The bedbugs and the beetles were playing a game of ball The score was one to nothing, the beetles were ahead The bedbugs hit a homer and knocked me out of bed Sing another song, I asked him Well, I would, he said, but that's the only song I know he smiled at me with mischief in his eyes, jiggling in the fancy bed that whirred. Everett stopped eating. The counselor talked with me about his weight loss. They wanted to put a feeding tube in his stomach. I was against it. The intake of food was the only thing that Everett could control. He could not walk. He could not defecate in a toilet. He could not leave the nursing home. He could not choose his food or his clothes or his roommate. He could choose to refuse food. The counselor, the head nurse, and I sat in her office discussing Everett and the question of intervention. I had an aunt who did not want forced feeding, started the nurse. She had signed this into her living will. 
She did not want intervention of any kind to keep her alive, and I supported her decision. She aged and went into a nursing home. Eventually, she lost her conscious mind, and she quit eating. We respected her wishes, but I'm telling you, it is a hard thing to watch somebody starve. Do you know what happens? She asked. Her eyes were glassy with a memory's force. Well, you get real thin, right? Just all bones, I said. That's right. Your body uses up all your energy reserves, and you get very thin and emaciated. But then, needing to convert something into energy to stay alive, the body becomes cannibalistic. It starts to reabsorb the skin. It starts eating itself to live, literally. Oh, it is awful to witness. She rubbed her face with her hands. The counselor sat silently. You know, you've got to respect the body's desire to live. Life is so strong in its will to continue, I started. It must have been hard to see that happen to your aunt. Yeah, it was. She looked into my eyes. I don't want to watch that happen to Mr. Batterbury, and I'm not sure that he would want that for himself, and now he cannot tell us. I wasn't sure Everett would want to starve to death. The results were so grim. The counselor nurse and I talked for another hour. We discussed family responsibility, the current aired notion of success, multi-generational interaction, and the inevitability of death. I gave the nursing home the go-ahead on the tube incision. One night, Jesse Edward and I came to see Everett. At times he recognized us and reached for us, the twinkle in his eye. At times he stared without seeing. Jesse and I sat on either side of him, on the bed. Edward sat by his feet. I rubbed his hand and his arm. Jesse did the same to the other hand. We rubbed his head and his neck. We sang quiet songs. I cooed and clucked over him. I was so reminded of when Edward was an infant, and I'd comfort him without words, using touch, sound, smell, and rhythm. Here I was again, at the other end of a life, using the same skills. I used to imagine a blanket of warmth and gentle power wrapped around my baby. Within that blanket, the baby could relax fully, feeling safe and supported. I gave the same to Everett. It is an old knowing. I was born with it. It is an ancient trust. Here we are on a planet spinning in a vastly expanding universe of chaotic order. To dumb, dumb, my heart beats. So I held the hand of an old man slipping out of life. I wrapped my arm around his and held it to my chest. Our hands joined in the crook of my neck. Everett looked in my eyes. I don't know if he knew me or not, but he settled into the space I created. 
He leaned back on the stacked pillows next to Jesse. He turned to look at Jesse, almost nose to nose. His mouth hung open, drawn into a loose O. He reached for Jesse's face with a bony hand covered in skin almost translucent. He touched his nose, his brow, his jaw. He held Jesse's eyes in a meditative stare while he read the face with his hands. When he was finished, he leaned forward slightly. He looked out in front of him. He reached out to touch other faces in the air. He spoke words that we did not understand. He waved as if beckoning someone to come closer. We sat on the bed. He turned to look at me and asked, When are the girls coming? He went back to his motions in the air. After a while, he settled back into the pillows. I gave him some water in a cup. He drank. I put the cup on the table beside him. I looked into his eyes. Everett, we love you. I spoke softly. We're here for you. If you're ready to move on, you can rely on us. If you're afraid, you can lean on us. Even when we're not in this room with you, we're with you. The room was still. I heard our breathing, each unique in its rhythm, each rhythmic, audible. I looked at Edward. He was not reading. He, like me, like Jesse, and like Everett, was held in this moment, quiet, moving, passing. Time hung in the room like a great thread weaving us together. Jesse and I started to sing. We started a low chant. We held Everett's hands on either side. I sang above Jesse's baritone. We sang quietly so that no one would come to the room to interrupt us. We gave him safe passage. I felt the presence of death, and I was not afraid. When the song ended, we kissed Everett and bade Walter good night. We left and drove home. We passed the gravestone business. We passed the hamburger joint. We traveled the dark road in silence. Edward nestled into Jesse's broad chest. Jesse surrounded Edward with his big arm. A fine peace settled onto us and held us as we passed the lighted factory, still at work, always at work. We crossed the distance back to our homes and our lives, and for each of us, part remained back in the nursing home with an old man ready to die. The next day I received a call from a Dr. Flowers at the hospital. He had received a call from the nursing home. Everett needed a blood transfusion. The doctor and I spoke at length. It was the first time that a doctor took the time to talk with me, heart to heart. We talked about Everett, about quality of life, about dignity and death. I did not favor the transfusion. Neither did he. He told me about the death of his grandfather, who died at home, surrounded by his family. We decided that a blood transfusion would prolong a life that was ready to move on. 
He assured me that he would call the nursing home and explain. Five days later, on a Saturday morning, I was in Sears, helping a friend look for shoes. My beeper sounded. I checked the call. It was my dad. He'd received a call from the nursing home at 5.30 a.m. They were unable to reach me, so they called him. Everett died Saturday morning at 4 a.m. In this way, I learned that Everett was dead. His body was taken to the county morgue. The coroner called me. I fielded him on what to do. I had no experience in dealing with the dead. My impulse was to bring the body home for washing and cleaning. I wanted to handle him and sing to him again. The coroner told me that I could not do that for health reasons. Everett had told me that he wanted to be cremated. I contacted a cremation business the first in the phone directory. I very much liked the voice of the man on the telephone. I went to his place of business. It was small and straightforward. We talked. His name was Jeb. He was very tall and big. He was from Iowa. I wrote out a check for $850, the cost of the cremation. The coroner's office transported Everett's body to the crematorium. The next morning, I went to pick up his remains. Jeb and I talked again. He said that he handled the cremations for most of the Hindus in Birmingham. All the while, a small white box labeled J. Everett Batterbury sat on his desk. Edward walked around. Photographs of children and classic cars covered one wall behind his desk. Calligraphed sentiments of bereavement and famous quotes on the nature of life and death were scattered on the other wall, above the green naugahyde couch. A brown high-traffic carpet covered the floor. The room was dark. Outside, the sky was bright with light reflected from the clouded sky. The air was thick, promising a storm. Jeb took us back to the furnace. It was made of brick. It was long and arched at the top. He described the process. We bring in the body through that door. He indicated a large overhead door to the right. I put the body on a gurney and slide it into the oven. He motioned towards several gurneys standing empty on the concrete slab. Then I light the fire. Most of the body burns quickly, but the bones are resistant. The most resistant part is the skull. Sometimes it explodes, sometimes it doesn't. When the firing is done, I bring the remains out. If there are large pieces of bone remaining, I put them on this. He indicated a long work table to the left. I crush the remaining pieces. Edward and I looked on. Wow, look at that, said Edward. I looked in the direction of his eyes and saw an old Corvette, beautifully restored to the left, next to the big door. Jeb talked with Edward about the car. I stood, taking in the surroundings. The room was warm, 
from the burning of Everett's body. We returned to the office. Jeb sat behind his desk. His hands were thick and large. He sat with a form in front of him, asking me questions. I put an obituary in the paper as part of the fee. How would you like it to read? He asked. Well, let's see. Uh, I'd like it to say, He was a decent human being. He is survived by friends who love him. Edward wanted to look in the box. I opened it. Inside was a plastic bag filled with ash and small bits of crushed bone. Edward's eyes were wide. That's Everett's bones, he said. Yep, said Jeb. I closed the bag and closed the box and gathered my things. Edward and I drove home in the truck with Everett. storm came later that day. It was an early spring storm, fiercely showy with dense rain. I was working at my desk when Edward came in. The room was dark, although it was day. How you doing, Mom? He asked. He massaged my shoulders gently. Not too bad, Edward. Not too bad. Are you looking for high-quality, custom-printed products, such as labels, signage, or t-shirts for your business? Check out Markham Bailey Image and Print. Our quality is impeccable, and our service is smart and friendly. We love helping our clients succeed. Contact us today on the web at mabaprints.com. That's M-A-B-A Prints. Dot com. The audio mixing for this episode was done by artist and programmer Wade Collier. Our theme music is by Craig Haltgren. 
for the full text of Not Too Bad. And for more information on the Present Tense podcast, please go to our website, greenbucketpress.com backslash present tense podcast. The Present Tense podcast creates stories of authentic voice. If you would like to contact us or pitch a story, please contact us at hello at greenbucketpress.com. Remember to subscribe to Present Tense Podcast on Apple Podcasts and please rate our show. Until the next time, this is Ann Bailey with Present Tense Podcast.